0: This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13.
1: On June 24, 1886, a messenger pulled Dr. Frederick Treves away from his rounds at the London Hospital. He was needed urgently at the police station. There was a very strange case in progress and they hoped Treves might be able to help sort it out.
0: Treves was down at the station often, offering his medical insight on murder cases. But this time, the victim he'd be examining was still alive. Someone, or something, had disembarked from the train at Liverpool Street Station, and the very sight of it had caused a riot. The police couldn't make out a word the poor creature was saying, but it had the doctor's card in its pocket.
1: Treves followed the messenger to the station and forced his way through the dense crowd. The officer standing guard at the door let him into the waiting room. In the far corner, something was huddled under a swath of dark fabric. When it turned its face upward, Treves recognized it. Him, the Elephant Man.
0: The most intriguing medical specimen he'd ever laid eyes on. For two years, Treves had been trying to track him down. Now he was right in front of him, no bossy two-bit showman standing between them. Treves promised the police he'd make sure the elephant man stayed off the streets. He would never be exhibited in a backroom freak show again.
1: No. From now on, he would be exhibited somewhere far better, in the hallowed halls of the London Hospital. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game, with life or death stakes.
0: This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original.
1: I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type medical mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: This is our second episode on Joseph Carey Merrick, better known as the Elephant Man. Last week, we discussed Merrick's career as a freak show performer and his introduction to Dr. Frederick Treves. This week, we'll follow Joseph's time at the London Hospital and search for an explanation for his condition. By the time Joseph Merrick reached adulthood, his mysterious congenital disorder was so severe that the only work he could find was in a traveling novelty show. The bones in his right arm, feet, and skull were overgrown. His face was covered in bony tumors, and his skin hung in rough, loose sacks. A childhood hip injury combined with severe scoliosis made it difficult for him to walk, and a large growth on his upper lip made it nearly impossible
1: for him to speak. Doctors were unable to pinpoint the cause of Joseph's ailments. The prevailing explanation during his childhood was maternal impression. His mother had been badly scared by an elephant during pregnancy, so Joseph took on the form of an elephant. After his case was
0: presented to the Pathological Society of London in March 1885, Dr. Radcliffe Crocker suggested that it was a combination of two skin disorders called dermatolysis and pachydermatosula, but how the bone deformities fit into the picture was still a mystery.
1: With genetic research still in its infancy, there was next to no hope for a cure, even if the root of Joseph's condition was discovered. His symptoms kept worsening year after year. In fact,
0: by the time Joseph was 23, his appearance was too shocking even for the freak show circuit. After being chased out of a series of European cities by the police, he found himself robbed, abandoned, and left to fend for himself in Brussels. His career was at a dead end, and his life savings had been stolen by an unscrupulous showman. He returned to London defeated, unsure where to turn next.
1: The moment he stepped off the train on June 24, 1886, he was mobbed by a crowd of terrified onlookers. The police rescued him from the chaos and took him down to the station. Joseph tried to explain himself, but the officers couldn't understand a word of his garbled speech. Instead, they called on the doctor whose card was buried in his pocket, Frederick Treves. Joseph's examinations by Dr. Treves two years
0: earlier had been fruitless and generally degrading, but when the surgeon arrived at the station and shepherded him into a cab, he didn't have much of a choice but to go with him.
1: Joseph didn't say a word on the way to the hospital. Treves seemed sure that he was content and happy to reunite, but this should be taken with a grain of salt since Joseph's facial tumors prevented him from making any expressions of either sadness or joy.
0: When they arrived at the London Hospital, Joseph was immediately taken up to the isolation ward in the attic. The secluded, single bedroom was generally used for mentally ill patients who were deemed dangerous, but in Joseph's case, He was being sequestered off for his own safety to make sure the other patients didn't harass him.
1: But he still had to deal with the staff. The nurse who brought him his food that evening hadn't been fully informed about his appearance. The moment she entered the room, she screamed, dropped the tray, and ran out the door. Joseph was so
0: exhausted, the commotion barely woke him up from his nap. But after that incident, Treves made sure that every nurse who entered the attic was prepared to act professionally.
1: But however polite the staff acted, Joseph still didn't trust them. For his first few days, he was constantly on edge, jumping at every knock on the door, flinching every time a nurse tried to touch him. He was suspicious of anyone who entered, especially doctors. It was a hard-won victory when he finally let Dr. Treves examine him a few days after his arrival.
0: Joseph was noticeably weaker and less healthy than he had been two years ago. He had developed bronchitis, and he was showing early signs of heart problems. If he was indeed suffering from Dermatolysis and pachydermatosula, the two skin disorders suggested by Dr. Radcliffe Crocker the previous year, that could explain his worsening condition.
1: As we discussed last week, Dermatolysis affects the elasticity of tissues. The most obvious symptom is looseness of the skin, but it can also affect tissues in the heart, blood vessels, and lungs. This could be the source of Joseph's heart and respiratory problems.
0: Pachydermatocilla causes tumors in the tissue surrounding the nerves. Treves wouldn't have known this at the time, but in rare cases, these tumors can grow inside the lungs and obstruct the bronchial tubes. The resulting symptoms are often misdiagnosed as
1: bronchitis. The conclusion Treves drew was that Joseph's healthy days were numbered. He and his fellow doctors were in agreement that whatever was wrong with Joseph, they stood no chance of curing it. His condition would keep deteriorating until he eventually died a slow, painful death. All they could do was make his remaining time as comfortable as possible.
0: There was one problem. The London Hospital didn't accept patients with chronic conditions. The facility was overcrowded as it was, and they only had the resources for a short-term treatment. Treves had talked the hospital's chairman into admitting Joseph temporarily, but he couldn't stay there forever.
1: Typically, chronic cases were sent to a long-term care center, like the Royal Hospital for Incurables or the British Home and Hospital for Incurables. But both of these institutions politely declined to take in the Elephant Man. He couldn't be
0: sent back to the government workhouse, either, since his disabilities made it impossible for him to do any work. And simply turning him loose to fend for himself would be inhumane.
1: Joseph suggested they send him either to a hospital for the blind, where his appearance wouldn't be a problem, or to a remote lighthouse, where he'd never have to see another person at all. But neither of these avenues were pursued.
0: The hospital chairman finally wrote a letter to the Times in December 1886, asking the public for any leads on accommodations for the poor man. He emphasized that there was no hope for a cure, and the London Hospital was not the proper place for such an incurable case. But Joseph's condition was so dire that something had to be done to help him.
1: The response was overwhelming. Within three days, about £100 had been donated, the equivalent of over $15,000 today. Another donor pledged to give £50 a year for Joseph's upkeep if he was kept in the hospital. By the end of the week, the story had reached every corner of the country and enough money had been sent in to keep Joseph in comfort for the rest of his life.
0: But there was still no one personally willing to take him in. With funding no longer an issue, the chairman decided they might as well keep him at the London Hospital.
1: Joseph was warming up to the hospital after his first few months. He finally had some peace and quiet, and it was more comfortable than toiling away in the workhouse or being mobbed on the street. And since none of his benefactors happened to own a lighthouse, he didn't have any better options. He agreed.
0: It was settled. With the money they'd collected, the hospital staff got to work building a permanent home for their new tenant. There was a suite of two spare rooms on the basement level, with an exterior door and a flight of concrete steps leading out to a large courtyard. The main room was converted into a sitting room with a fireplace, a table and chairs and a leather upholstered chaise lounge that doubled as a bed, custom-built to accommodate Joseph's unusual sleeping position.
1: Joseph still had to sleep sitting up with his head resting forward on his knees or the weight of his massive head would strain his neck backwards.
0: The second room was converted into a bathroom with a tub for the daily baths required to keep his skin stench at bay. Under Treve's orders, no mirrors were allowed in the bathroom or anywhere in the suite.
1: The strategy behind the new apartment was what doctors now call palliative care. Since Joseph's physical problems couldn't be treated, the hospital focused on treating his pain and psychological stress and improving his quality of life as much as possible.
0: The custom bed and chairs would minimize the pain from his scoliosis and other skeletal problems. The lack of mirrors would help him forget about his appearance, which had clearly been a source of trauma throughout his life. And simply having a permanent home and regular meals would ease the financial stress that had plagued him since childhood.
1: Joseph was fully bewildered when he saw his new quarters. It was hardly a palace, but it was all he'd ever dreamed of, a home of his own, a secluded little sanctuary where he could live in comfort and privacy for the rest of his days. After a lifetime full of abuse, harassment, and hopelessness, he couldn't wrap his head around the generosity he'd been shown.
0: Dr. Treves stopped by the basement to visit almost every day. Initially, he could barely understand a word out of Joseph's mouth, since his facial tumors made it difficult for him to speak. But now that Treves had picked up on Joseph's speech patterns, he was eager to learn what was going on inside the strange specimen's mind.
1: And now that he was comfortable, Joseph was eager to have someone to speak to. The nurses were polite enough, but few of them were able to understand anything he was saying. In Treves, he finally found not only a willing listener, but a conversation partner on his intellectual level. Initially, Treves
0: tried to pry into Joseph's childhood and family life, but he was strangely reticent. He never mentioned his father or his siblings. He did show off his small portrait of his mother with pride, But strangely, he never told Treves that his mother was dead. The doctor was left to assume that she had abandoned him as a child.
1: While he avoided talking about his own life, Joseph chatted on and on about books. He read everything he could get his hands on. Newspapers, magazines, Byron, Jane Austen, the Bible.
0: Treves noticed that Joseph spoke about the books he'd read as if they were incidents in the lives of people who had lived. Books were his window into the lives he'd never be able to lead, the places he could never go. Characters filled the gaps left by his lack of personal relationships.
1: The doctor was beginning to realize rather belatedly that behind Joseph's horrifying face lay depths of intellect and emotion. He was a bright 24-year-old man, and he deserved to be treated as such. No more hiding away in the basement. It was time for Joseph to live as a human being, and Treves knew exactly where to start.
0: What Joseph needed was a friend who would treat him like an equal, without regard to his physical condition. For this role, Treves recruited a friend of his, a strong-nerved, upper-class young widow named Leela Maturin. All she had to do was say hello to Joseph, smile, and repress any gut reaction she might have to his hideous form.
1: Leela performed her duty with ease. She accompanied Treves to Joseph's room, greeted him with a smile, and extended a hand. And that's when it all fell apart. Joseph instantly collapsed into uncontrollable sobs. Treves ushered the alarmed young lady out into the hallway just as quickly as she'd come in.
0: When they were alone again, Joseph explained to the doctor that this was the first time in his life a woman he didn't know had smiled at him. He'd befriended a handful of men over the years, but women, as a rule, met him with screams of terror. That a pretty, well-born society lady could shake his hand without any shock or revulsion was inconceivable.
1: It's hard to say whether Joseph knew that the whole encounter had been contrived by Treves, but in the end, it didn't seem to matter. The brief, awkward meeting planted a seed of hope in his heart. He could be treated with dignity he could be accepted into the Brotherhood of Humanity. He could live a life. The life
0: he lived would be short, but spectacular. Coming up, Joseph Merrick makes his debut in high society. Now back to the story.
1: At 24 years old, Joseph Merrick was no stranger to the spotlight but his celebrity had always been of the lowbrow variety.
0: In fact, the morally concerned upper classes were responsible for shutting down his exhibitions, driving him out of every city in Europe, and leaving him in destitution.
1: So it came as quite a shock when, in early 1887, those same high-class ladies started lining up outside Joseph's room at the London Hospital for a sideshow of a different sort. The Elephant Man had become the Elephant Gentleman.
0: There had been a massive outpouring of support when Joseph's story was publicized in the Times the previous December. The Victorian aristocracy, in their moral virtue, were touched by this poor, unfortunate soul whose deformities made a normal life impossible. It was their duty to cheer up the miserable creature that was Joseph Merrick.
1: Undoubtedly, the interest in Joseph's case was driven by curiosity as much as charity. But Joseph didn't seem to care. At least his newest audience was willing to temper their shock and shake his hand with a smile.
0: Once the floodgates were opened, every society lady in London wanted to meet the famed Elephant Man. Within a few months, Joseph's basement suite at the hospital was such a hot spot that it became known as the Elephant House.
1: His fireplace mantle was covered in photos from the kind-hearted women who couldn't visit in person. Soon he'd amassed a decent library of gifted books. he spent his days reading, entertaining guests, and writing letters to his friends and admirers.
0: He often signed his letters with a poem. "'Tis true my form is something odd, but blaming me is blaming God. Could I create myself anew, I would not fail in pleasing
1: you.'" The pinnacle of his fame came in May of 1887, when the future King Edward VII and Queen Alexandra, then the Prince and Princess of Wales, came to visit. The future Queen took his hand with a warm smile and sat down for a relaxed conversation, interpreted by Dr. Treves, since Joseph's speech was still barely intelligible. It was a
0: roaring change of pace for the young man who'd spent most of his life living in squalor. He was grateful for the gifts, the company, the civilized conversation. But Treves didn't appear to see the irony in the situation he'd created.
1: There was only one visitor who couldn't gain admission to the Elephant House. Shortly after he moved into his new home, Joseph wrote a letter to Tom Norman, whom he hadn't seen or heard from in two years. Norman tried to drop by the hospital for a visit, but Treves refused to let him in. Treves continued
0: to insist that Joseph had been abused and exploited by the showman, even though Joseph had only positive things to say about his former business partner. In fact, Trius seemed to ignore anything that challenged his initial assumptions about his patient.
1: Despite his newfound celebrity, Joseph had spells of extreme loneliness and depression. His new home was comfortable, but at times it felt a bit like a prison. When he tried to venture out of his room during daylight hours, he was restrained by the nurses lest he cause a scene with the other patients. At night, he could walk freely around the courtyard, but only as far as the hospital gate.
0: Trees took it as a sign of Joseph's confidence that he dared to roam all the way across the garden. But for a young man who'd spent years traveling across Europe, the short walk was hardly an adventure.
1: During his quiet days alone in his room, Joseph would often sit staring into nothingness, slowly beating his hand against his pillow. When Trees walked in, He came to the conclusion that Joseph was joyfully keeping time to some song in his head, the way someone with functional lips might whistle to themselves.
0: It seems more likely that this was a sign of stress. Repetitive, purposeless behaviors like pacing or tapping one's fingers are often caused by mental tension and anxiety. Psychomotor agitation, as it's called, is a
1: common symptom of depression and anxiety disorders. Joseph sometimes asked if he could be moved to a hospital for the blind or a lighthouse, as he'd previously suggested. Treves reassured him that there was no need to worry about moving again. He was allowed to stay at the hospital for the rest of his life.
0: Eventually, Joseph grasped what this meant. He was, for all intents and purposes, the property of the London Hospital. On more than one occasion, he sardonically mused to his doctors about what it would look like suspended in a giant glass bottle of alcohol, preserved as a specimen for all time.
1: Obviously, this was a red flag that Joseph didn't enjoy being cooped up in the hospital with nothing to do but dwell on his inevitable death. He may have been suffering from what psychiatrist David W. Kassane called demoralization syndrome. In palliative care settings, especially in cases involving disability and bodily disfigurement, patients often feel an existential hopelessness and loss of meaning in their lives. When unaddressed, these feelings can lead to severe depression and suicidal ideation.
0: That said, Treves had a legitimate reason for wanting his patient to stay in the safety of his room. Joseph had grown more confident and comfortable since being moved to his private ward with no unexpected visitors and no mirrors. If he went out in public, he would undoubtedly be harassed by passers-by, and that could undo all the psychological progress he had made.
1: Still, Joseph was not content to sit around in his hospital room all day. As a young man of artistic tastes, he had always dreamed of seeing a play at the theater. Since his presence in the audience would distract from the show on stage, this dream had never come to pass. But where there's a will, there's always a way.
0: Sometime in 1887, one of Joseph's many pen pals, a famed actress named Madge Kendall, arranged for him to see a show at the Drury Lane Theatre from the safety of a private box. Getting to the box was another endeavor. Joseph was shuffled out of the London hospital in his typical outdoor garb and shepherded into a carriage with the blinds tightly drawn. When they reached the theatre, the carriage pulled up close to the secluded royal entrance which was meant to be used for visits by the royal family. He was smuggled up the private staircase and into the box without incident.
1: Joseph and Treves sat in the shadows in the back of the box. A trio of nurses sat in front of them, blocking the line of sight of any audience members who happened to look upwards.
0: From the moment the curtain rose, Joseph was enraptured. It was the first stage show he'd ever seen and he watched it with the silent wonder of a child.
1: Treves noticed that he was unimpressed by the play's clowns and the slapstick humor, but he roared with laughter when the policeman character was beaten to the ground.
0: For weeks after the show, it was all Joseph could talk about. He let his imagination run wild, inquiring about the characters as if they were real people. I wonder what the prince did after we left. Do you think that poor man is still in the dungeon?
1: The play offered a happy distraction from his constant pain. By late 1887, a year into his time at the London hospital, it was clear that Joseph's condition was rapidly deteriorating.
0: His bony masses and loose skin were continuing to grow by the day and the growth on his upper lip, which had already been amputated once before, was again so large that he couldn't close his mouth. The heart problems he'd begun exhibiting a couple years earlier were getting worse, and he had frequent bouts of bronchitis. It was assumed by this point that Joseph would die within a few years, and there was nothing they could do to stop it.
1: Still only in his mid-twenties... Joseph was staring down the end of his life. But despite the constant pain and the increasing difficulty of movement, he didn't fall into despair. There was still so much to do, so much beauty to see.
0: The details of the next few years are hazy, but during the autumns of 1887, 88, and 89, Joseph was given a reprieve to visit the countryside, staying at the farms of a few of his admirers in Northamptonshire. Joseph was a lover of nature, and in the secluded woods and fields, he could wander to his heart's content without being seen by another soul. For the first time, he found the freedom he'd always yearned for.
1: During his weeks in the country, Joseph limped along the stream watching the fish swim in the clear water, listening to the bird songs. He sat among the changing trees reading poetry. He wrote letters to his friends and pressed wildflowers into the pages. But
0: when the winter set in, it was time to return to the hospital. Despite his emotional peace, his body kept getting weaker. By the late 1880s, his head had grown so heavy that he could barely hold it up. His heart and lungs were weakened to the point where even a light walk wore him out.
1: In these final years, it seems he was quietly content with the life he'd lived, however brief it might have been. In 1888, he wrote an open letter to the public. I should like to say a few words of thanks to all that came forward with help and sympathy. My kind doctor, Mr. Treves, is both friend and doctor to me. I have a nice bright room made cheerful with flowers, books, and pictures. I am very comfortable, and I may say as happy as my condition will allow me to be.
0: Still, his deteriorating body left him in constant pain and exhaustion. On a typical day, he stayed in bed until noon, did some reading and writing until evening, and took a slow, solitary stroll through the garden after dark.
1: And then, in April of 1890, the house surgeon came by for his afternoon rounds and found Joseph still in bed. Not sitting up as he usually slept, lying flat across his back. His lunch was untouched where the nurse had left it. At 27 years old, the elephant man was dead.
0: Coming up, we'll look at the cause of Joseph Merrick's death and search for an answer to his lifelong condition. Now, back to the story.
1: On the afternoon of April 11, 1890, Joseph Merrick was found dead in his room at the London Hospital. He was lying peacefully on his back across the bed with no signs of a struggle.
0: This was odd since Joseph never slept lying down. He had to sleep sitting up or the weight of his head would strain his neck. The coroner's inquest confirmed that he had died of asphyxiation due to his head pressing down on his windpipe.
1: Joseph had known for years that lying on his back was not only uncomfortable, but unsafe. A nurse had seen him sitting up in his regular position at 1.30, just an hour and a half before he was found dead. The question remained, why would he lie down in the middle of the afternoon, fully knowing the risks?
0: The doctors who initially examined the scene guessed from his position that he had been trying to stand up when he lost his balance and fell backwards. He was unable to pull himself up because of his disproportionately heavy head, and he slowly suffocated from the pressure on his windpipe.
1: Frederick Treves had his own theory. Joseph had often told him that he wished he could sleep lying down like everyone else. Treves proposed that Joseph had attempted the experiment that afternoon out of curiosity. He wrote, Thus it came that his death was due to the desire that had dominated his life, the pathetic but hopeless desire to be like other people.
0: Tom Norman, the showman, had a slightly different take. Joseph had always prized his independence and dignity two things that were taken away from him during his stay in the hospital. Between his declining health and the constant prodding by unhelpful doctors, Norman believed Joseph had lost the will to keep living. He proposed that Joseph, probably in a what-the-hell frame of mind, quite conscious of the risk, lay full length on the bed and never woke up. Perhaps that's what he wanted
1: since so little is known about his final years we can only guess at his state of mind leading up to his death joseph merrick faded out quietly with the same mystery and unknowability he cultivated throughout his life but the elephant man's career wasn't over he still had performances to give and stories to tell
0: Joseph's body was almost immediately dissected for further study. Treves oversaw the process of preserving his bones and skin samples in creating plaster casts of his head and limbs. As the bones were bleached and mounted together, they formed an unimaginably gruesome skeleton. His spine was severely curved, tilting his posture to the side His right arm and hand were much bigger than his left, as expected. Additionally, his right femur was about twice as thick as the left and covered in a rough, gravelly texture.
1: Joseph's legs hadn't looked notably different from the exterior. His right leg was always bent at the knee when he stood upright, but this was blamed on his slanted posture. It wasn't evident until now that the bones of the right leg were massively overgrown.
0: In fact, almost all of his skeletal deformities were focused on the right side. The left side of the skeleton looked fine, except for the remaining damage of his hip infection at age five.
1: And then there's the skull, which looks like it was melted down and blown out of a volcano. The entire cranium is distorted by bubbly, misshapen lumps.
0: Once again, the deformities are more prominent on the right side. A growth of bone stretches across the left brow, but the rest of the left facial bones are relatively normal. On the right side, a long growth descends a few inches below the chin,
1: the so-called elephant trunk. Joseph's skeleton is a useful clue in deciphering his condition. The bones are still being held at the Royal London Hospital for curious researchers and medical students. Unfortunately, his skin samples, along with every paper record from his time at the hospital, were lost during World War II. This presents a challenge for modern doctors trying to lock down an answer. Over the past century,
0: advances in neurology and genetics have offered a few possible answers to the mystery of the Elephant Man. Before we try and put together the puzzle, let's take another look at the pieces.
1: As we discussed last week, Frederick Treves noted three major categories of symptoms. Bone deformities, loose sagging skin, and warty tumors within the skin tissue. The right side of his body was considerably more affected by these symptoms than the left. Within the last few years of his life, Joseph also experienced chronic bronchitis and some sort of heart problems.
0: Joseph didn't start to display any of his symptoms until age five, shortly after his left hip was injured and became infected. He always claimed that none of his parents or siblings had similar health problems, but historical evidence suggests that his younger sister was afflicted from birth with some sort of disability.
1: For the sake of completeness, we should also mention Joseph's mother's encounter with the circus elephant during pregnancy. This was widely accepted as the cause of Joseph's condition during his lifetime, though his doctors were skeptical. We can rule out maternal
0: impression since the theory was soundly discredited in the early 20th century. Psychological stress during pregnancy can impact a fetus's development. But it's highly unlikely a condition like Joseph's could have been triggered by an acute stressful situation like his mother's elephant run-in.
1: We can also forget about elephantiasis, the mosquito-borne disease that's sometimes tossed around as a possibility. Every doctor who examined Joseph made it explicitly clear that his symptoms did not line up with elephantiasis. And since he never visited any tropical climates, It's nearly impossible he could have contracted the disease in the first place.
0: That leaves us with the diagnosis suggested by Dr. Radcliffe Crocker at the 1885 Pathological Society meeting, Dermatolysis and pachydermatosula. As we mentioned earlier, Dermatolysis affects the elasticity of bodily tissues causing loose, drooping folds of skin. Pachydermatosula also known as plexiform neurofibroma, causes tumor growths around the nerves. Both of these accurately describe Joseph's symptoms, but at the time, there was little known about what caused the disorders, so Joseph couldn't be definitively tested.
1: It was also assumed that these conditions could only affect the skin, so they couldn't be responsible for Joseph's bone problems. It wasn't until the turn of the century that doctors realized skin growths and bone growths could, in fact, be caused by the same disorder. In
0: 1909, Dr. Frederick Parks Weber, a dermatologist at the German hospital in London, published an article on neurofibromatosis, also known as NF1. He stated that the most famous example was undoubtedly the famous elephant man. NF1 is a disorder of the nervous system that causes tumors known as neurofibroma to form on nerve tissue. It had first been described in 1882 by German pathologist Friedrich Daniel von Recklinghausen. It took decades for anyone to realize von Recklinghausen was describing the same set of symptoms that Crocker had called dermatolysis
1: and pachydermatosula. Dr. Parks Weber had examined Joseph Merrick while he was still alive. In 1909, he asserted that Joseph's skin condition was caused by an extreme case of neurofibromatosis, as described by von Recklinghausen. This was widely accepted as accurate.
0: Two decades later, Weber suggested that Joseph's bone abnormalities were also caused by the same disorder. There had been several other cases of patients with NF1 developing bony tumors on their skulls. Weber proposed that neurofibroma tumors could form in the periosteum, the membrane that covers the bone's outer surface. These tumors could then result in bone malformations.
1: Thus, the strange growths on Joseph's skin and bones were both caused by NF1. The lingering question was, what causes NF1 in the first place?
0: In 1990, it was discovered that NF1 is caused by a mutation of the neurofibromin-1 gene, which codes for the protein that suppresses cell growth. When this protein isn't created correctly, cells will keep growing and dividing rapidly, causing tumors. This genetic mutation can be passed down through families, but about half of all cases occur spontaneously without any family history.
1: Throughout the 20th century, NF1 was generally accepted as the cause of the elephant man's ailment. But some researchers still weren't satisfied. For one thing, Joseph's condition was far more severe than any confirmed case of the disorder that's ever been recorded.
0: For another, the telltale sign of NF1 is small pigmented café au lait splotches on the skin, like light overgrown freckles. These spots are present in 99% of NF1 patients, but they were never noted in any of Joseph's many examinations.
1: The easy rebuttal to this is that Joseph's deformities were so bizarre and extreme, slight pigmentation of his skin probably wouldn't have struck anyone as noteworthy. Since his skin samples were lost before they could be analyzed, there's no way to conclusively say whether he had these spots or not.
0: Still, there are enough unknowns to make us question whether NF1 is the answer. In 1986, Professors J.A.R. Tibbles and Michael Cohen, Jr. offered an alternative theory, proteus syndrome. This is an extremely rare genetic condition that causes skin, bones, and other tissues to grow out of proportion, resulting in tumors and skeletal abnormalities. Proteus syndrome can affect any part of the body, but the skull and limbs are typically among the affected regions. Also, the symptoms are usually asymmetrical, affecting the two sides of the body differently.
1: Tibbles and Cohn asserted that Joseph Merrick's symptoms are fully compatible with Proteus Syndrome. It explains the asymmetrical growth patterns of his limbs and skull, along with the overgrowths of soft tissue on head, chest, and back. Just
0: like NF1, Proteus Syndrome is a genetic mutation that's present from birth but it doesn't manifest itself until early childhood. However, the typical onset for Proteus is between 6 and 18 months. Joseph Merrick didn't start showing symptoms until he was 5.
1: Another quick rebuttal. The only source we have for this fact is Joseph himself. Joseph routinely forgot his own birth date, so he's not exactly the most reliable source for information on his own life.
0: Even if the onset was delayed, this doesn't rule out Proteus syndrome as a possibility. Every person's genes are unique, so the condition affects each patient differently. Another detail that fits Joseph's case, Proteus syndrome isn't hereditary. It's caused by a random mutation during embryonic development. There are no known cases of a parent and child both being affected by the syndrome.
1: Unfortunately, While surgery can correct some of the bone and tissue overgrowths caused by Proteus Syndrome, no cure for the condition has been found. Even if Joseph were somehow diagnosed during his lifetime, it's unlikely there could have been anything done to help him.
0: Looking at all the evidence, the general consensus among doctors today is that Joseph Merrick most likely suffered from Proteus Syndrome. It's the only single diagnosis that fits every one of his symptoms. The asymmetrical skeletal deformities, the strange bony growths, the loose overgrown skin and the lack of similar symptoms anywhere in his family tree.
1: However, coming to a definitive answer is difficult since the diagnosis of Proteus syndrome requires genetic testing and none of Joseph's tissue samples have been found. Theoretically, DNA could be extracted
0: from his bones, but the bleaching process used to clean the bones after his death badly damaged the DNA. Since 2013, researchers at Queen Mary University have been working on new techniques to extract genetic information from his bones, but at the time of this recording, the tests are still in progress.
1: As for the rest of Joseph's remains, they were buried in an unmarked grave shortly after his death. For 130 years, the exact location of the burial plot was unknown. But in May of 2019, author Joanne Mungoven traced his remains to the City of London cemetery and crematorium.
0: Since the remains were buried in a common grave with a number of other bodies, it's highly unlikely that anything useful could be found by disinterring them. But the discovery shows that Joseph, who was known to be religious, was given a proper burial in a Christian ceremony, a final act of dignity he undoubtedly would have wanted.
1: Joseph Merrick's unique case helped doctors connect the dots between skin disorders, bone growth, and the nervous system. But more importantly, It taught them that every person should be treated with respect. Beneath his monstrous face was a gentle soul. Behind his incomprehensible speech was a capable writer. And beyond the first impression of a helpless, pitiful creature was an intelligent young man who knew his weaknesses could also be his most profitable assets.
0: Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with another
1: episode.
0: You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Parcast Originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: We'll see you next time.
1: Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.